Welcome to the Unsettled Lives podcast. On this podcast, we'll be dusting off the history of Black communities in America. This bi-weekly podcast is about unearthing the hidden narratives of land loss, urban renewal, disinvestment, and gentrification among Black Americans. Hello there. My name is Celia Burke, and thank you for joining me on this episode of Unsettled Lives podcast. Happy New Year, or Gregorian New Year. I am now using this term because I agree with a lot of people who feel like the spring or spring equinox feels more like a fresh start than the winter time. With it being hibernation time for many creatures, and I honestly think humans too, although we fight against it, um, I just feel that it is so much easier to make resolutions and feel refreshed and feel like you have a new start when things are blooming around you, when the days are longer, when they're starting to get warmer, it feels like a fresh start to me. Um, but um, yes, as I said, I'm in hibernation mode <laughs> and I hope that you were able to get a little more rest over the past few weeks because we certainly do need it, especially to help our immune systems as we enter another surge of COVID and just other viruses that are spreading that tend to spread this time of year due to us being inside more and our immune systems just being a little bit uh, a little bit weaker now um, around this time of year. And even though I'm not feeling this Gregorian New Year and I'm starting to think a little differently about it, I still made and enjoyed some Hoppin' John to celebrate. And I think I will continue to do that as a tradition um, around this time of the year. Did you have Hoppin' John? If you had Hoppin' John, I would love to hear about it. You can send me an email, unsettledlivespod at gmail.com. If you haven't heard about it, it is a Southern dish rooted in Black American culture that symbolizes good luck and abundance. I cook it the way that many do in South Carolina and Georgia, which is where I have roots, with collard greens and black eyed peas, but there are many variations with the greens, types of beans or peas, and meat if you use it at all. Here in Louisiana, folks use cabbage in theirs. There may be some other variations I've never heard about, and I invite you to share those with me, along with any other New Year's traditions you partake in. Have you talked to a neighbor today? I know that came out of left field, but I told you I'd be asking you this question. Did you talk to your neighbors this holiday season? I find that this time of year kind of makes it easier for you to start those connections. It's just kind of a time of connection generally. And so I feel like if you've had trouble connecting with your neighbors before and it has nothing to do with hostility or anything like that, the holidays are just always a good time to kind of start some conversations and just share well wishes and things like that with others um, that you may not normally talk to.
go ahead and get started on our content today. The first episode of 2022 is going to be about Forsyth County, Georgia. Many of you may have heard about Oscarville and Lake Lanier, which are located here. I want to dispel some myths about Oscarville because there seems to be some confusion for a variety of reasons, I imagine. This is a story about violent displacement. So I'm gonna start by bringing attention to the first peoples of this place who were also displaced first. That is the Eastern Band of the Cherokee and the Yuchi Nation. From what I've read, the Yuchi were a powerful nation prior to European contact and the people were decimated by disease after contact. Many of the remaining people were absorbed into the Cherokee Nation and other nearby nations like the Muscogee. The Eastern Band of the Cherokee can still be found throughout Appalachia, while the Western Band is based in Oklahoma due to the Trail of Tears. I'll share the websites for the Yuchi and the Eastern Band of the Cherokee in the show notes. Let's continue on with the topic of this week's show. Here's a reminder that I'll describe some violent imagery. So sensitive listeners be aware. There is going to be a lot of discussion of sexual assault. Um, There's going to be discussion of violence and other forms. And there's gonna be discussion of terms that we do not use today or we should not be using today rather. So this is my content warning to you all and I encourage you if you are sensitive or if you have kids and you're not ready to expose them to this content, just um, keep that in mind. Also, I'm not a historian. I don't have all of the details. I know I could have packed way more in here, but I'm going to tell this story as best as I can and share resources so you can explore this story further. I'm not going to talk too much about Oscarville, Georgia, even though that's how I got introduced to what can only be described as a racial cleansing of Forsyth County in the fall of 1912. So I first heard about this in a short video by Amber Ruffin on NBC called How Did We Get Here? All about other Black communities that had disappeared like Tulsa, you know, um, we, many of us are familiar with the story of uh, Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Black Wall Street and the prosperity of that community um, at the time that it was destroyed. And this video that I saw was talking about how there were other black communities that suffered similar fates, but specifically this was talking about places where there had once been a black community and now there is a body of water, like a man-made lake. It is fairly common. And this is something I've actually thought about. I've actually thought about the displacement of people by damming rivers, creating these man-made lakes. Like this has happened to indigenous people. This has happened to black folks. It is very bizarre and it is a very 
I imagine, traumatic form of displacement as well. We don't talk much about it. When I heard about the town of Oscarville in this video, there was, um, it was described as a black town where Lake Lanier now sits. Lake Lanier is a man-made lake created by the damming of the Chattahoochee River. And while some abandoned structures are at the bottom of the lake, those structures don't technically belong to Oscarville. Lake Lanier is actually a few miles west of Oscarville. Additionally, the black residents of the area had been forced out in 1912, while the creation of Lake Lanier happened in the 1950s. I've seen a lot of connections between the creation of the lake and the removal of the black community of the area, as if the lake's creation was the reason that the removal happened. So as if there was a desire to dam this river so bad for hydroelectricity that they were like, okay, black folks leave. But the timing of that just doesn't work. Regardless, yes, the abandoned homes, churches, and other buildings belonging to the long gone black residents of Forsyth County are beneath the lake. Not all of them, but yes, there are some there. As I've done research on this subject, I found a lot of videos and other resources that explicitly mention Oscarville, indicating that it was a prominent black town in Forsyth County. I've seen comments with people pointing others in that direction when it comes to exploring this event, when the larger story is about the removal of nearly 1,100 Black residents from an entire county, let alone the small town of Oscarville. I primarily use the book Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America by Patrick Phillips for my research, which is all about this event, the issues that led up to it, and the lingering legacy of this event. In the early 20th century, Forsyth County was struggling like many places post-reconstruction in the South. There was a poor white illiterate population and a poor black illiterate population of farmers and other laborers with some wealthy white planters and some black educated landowners. According to Phillips' book, Oscarville was a tiny majority white farming town I repeat, I'm dispelling a myth based on this man's extensive research. Oscarville was a white town, not a black town, as so many other resources say. But black residents did live in the town's outskirts and worked as hired folks for the white farmers and business owners there. So there was a black presence in Oscarville, even though the town itself was not predominantly black. And my, here's my theory about this. I believe that some of this confusion simply comes from oral history and the way that some details can be unclear just because things are being passed along orally and not in written record. Not to say that everything written is accurate and not to say that things that are passed along orally are not accurate because oral history without it, there will be so many lost stories um, of people of color. But my thought is that because 
the event that sparked the trauma of the displacement of people being moved out of Forsyth County started in Oscarville. I think people have made that into a story of Oscarville was this black town that, you know, people were just trying to live their lives in. And it was dis- it was destroyed by the white members of the community for some reasons that aren't always clear when I'm actually doing research. Though, you know, some resources have been really great about telling us how it all went down. As I said, Oscarville is still important to the story because it was the scene of a gruesome crime. The rape and brutal beating of a white woman named May Crow, the daughter of a prominent farmer in the town. She was found by a search party in the woods outside of her home on September 9th, 1912. May was considered one of the most beautiful girls in the county, and so she was very popular and well-liked. This made it especially horrific in the eyes of the white residents of Oscarville and Cumming, Georgia, which was nearby in Forsyth County. May was not in any condition to make any accusations. After she'd been taken home and a doctor brought to tend to her, she was in a coma. White men in the town immediately began searching for the black man or the Negro, is what they called him, or worse than that, honestly, but I'm not going to say it. Though they had no evidence that a black man had done it. It's been suggested that a white wealthy male visitor to the Crow family may have been the culprit because he did show some interest in May, but obviously this wasn't investigated. Just days before, on September 5th, 1912, another white woman named Ellen Grice declared that she had been awakened by the presence of a Negro man in her bed after her husband walked into their bedroom and sounded the alarm. She had apparently screamed at the time. Immediately, the search began for a culprit with black men of all types being rounded up. A teenage boy named Tony Howell was accused and arrested along with Isaiah Perkle, Joe Rogers, Fate Chester, and Johnny Bates on September 7th. And I am always wondering why there's always so many arrests in these situations. You know, they said it was one person But, you know, they've got to make it miserable and dangerous and just be accusatory to so many Black men in in that situation. It happens all the time. While these young men were held in jail, there was a mob outside getting really riled up to lynch them. A well-known Black leader, Reverend Grant Smith, stepped into the crowd wondering what was going on. He was like, what's, what's happening? And he asked another black person that he was with, like, hey, what's going on? And when he found out what had happened, he said something to the effect of how he didn't understand why a lynch mob was being stirred up for Tony due to a sorry white woman. That is a direct quote, apparently. 
The mob heard this and turned their anger on him by beating him up before he himself was thrown in jail. Now I'm gonna say something controversial. Um, I'm gonna start off by saying that violence against all women, against all femmes is very real. But there is a level of possession of the white women that white men have had and still have before Frank that is really hypocritical. All this fear about black men raping white women was abundant. While there were white men who were committing violent acts against white women without retribution. Additionally, there were consensual sexual relationships between white women and black men. Because this was so taboo at the time, if a white woman happened to be caught in the act, she'd cry rape. And even if folks knew this likely wasn't the case, like deep down they were like, I think that she was definitely consensually with this dude. They use this as an excuse to be violent towards black people. It's likely that Reverend Grant Smith knew this, which is why he said what he did. He's just like, Ellen is alive. She wasn't injured. And she could be lying about even having a black man in her bed. Or she had a black man in her bed because she wanted to. There were also white women who cried rape against black men for attention, knowing full well it would end in the brutal death of another human being, but wanting their name to be sensationalized, wanting to see the lengths that others would go to defend their honor. I assume too that white men committed violent acts against white women and used black men as a scapegoat that their peers were only too eager to believe. Meanwhile, the rape of black women by white men was fairly common and ignored. Even beyond this happening during slavery, books like At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. This was written by Danielle L. McGuire details the work of Rosa Parks, who didn't just refuse to get out of her seat on a bus one day. Before that, she was working for the NAACP as an advocate for black women who experienced sexual violence at the hands of white men, particularly in Montgomery, Alabama, where she was based. The book compares the cases of black women, which were often left untried and without any consequences for the white men involved, to the opposite end of the spectrum, where black men accused of raping white women were also untried, but lynched instead. I'll also say that oftentimes these lynchings were not just about a white woman victim, but that was the that was often the match, I'll say, that ignited the kindling that was building up of economic tension. And in my opinion, probably sexual insecurity or insecurity around ma masculinity based on stereotypes of black people that white people were often uh, very bought into. As I said, 
Forsyth County was a county of poor blacks and whites. Some black people were building their land through the acquisition of land and farming. A scarcity mindset and fear of black prosperity was another layer that led to the expulsion of all black people from this place. I'm gonna tie that to the accusation of Rob Edwards or Big Rob, a 24 year old black man who was accused of being the attacker of May Crow. He was a big young black man and a hard worker. It, in Philip's book, it said that his neighbors, including the crows were watching him carefully. There was already this intimidation surrounding this man for literally just existing in his body. And I think there was also this fear of economic progression because of how hard he was working. Ugh, you know, as I was looking at some of the things in this book too, newspapers were describing him in animalistic terms, which is very gross, but unsurprising. That was very common. It was very common to paint this picture of black men as beasts when it came to their behavior, which was often very nervous, was very frightened because obviously they know they're, they're gonna die. Like that's just what's gonna happen. This has happened many times before. <sighs> of course, others were arrested as conspirators as well, including more teenagers like 14 year old Ernest Knox. It was said that both of them confessed to the crime, though confessions were often brought on by torture, including mock lynching. Violence was the end of the road. It was the inevitability anyway, and these men and boys knew it. I don't blame them for confessing. Even if they knew it would mean their end, they were going to either continue to suffer, you know, through torture, or they would be killed. I mean, there would still be more torture more often than not. But I got to say, with the likely end being castration, shooting, dragging, burning, and hanging, I don't imagine many Black men were planning to rape white women. And certainly, if such a deed had been done, they wouldn't stick around town. White people were really out here pointing the finger at black men they didn't like, were jealous of, intimidated by, etc., and making the decision with zero consideration as to the evil of what they were about to do. The dehumanization is staggering. I just, all these black men know full and well the way that white mobs, white lynch mobs behave when it comes to, to them. So what, so if indeed this rape was per, um, perpetuated um, by a black man, why would he stay 
to get that kind of gruesome punishment. Like y'all literally thought we were just really, really stupid if we were going to linger. And to me, that's what's so frustrating about this. It's just, I think most people either they was just that level of dehumanization or they really just didn't care. They just wanted to kill a black person. And they found joy and relief in doing it in the most horrific of ways. Back to Rob Edwards. He was put in jail in Cumming, Georgia, which is the county seat. So that's the where the main county courthouse is. And Rob was violently removed from the jail, obviously terrified for his life because they had been yelling at him, saying, this is what we're going to do to you. And he knew full and well that they were very real and honest about that. He had no doubt about that. Do you, can you imagine how terrifying that is? I, I can't even imagine. That's torture in itself. Once he was removed, he was beaten and shot before being tied behind a wagon by his neck and being dragged around. By this time, he may have already been dead. Then the noose was thrown around a telephone pole in front of the courthouse and he was hung from it. Members of the community stuck around and shot at the corpse. Lynching is not just an excruciating act of violence for the victim, but also a public reminder of other, for other black folks to stay in their place. Of course, seeing Rob's body terrified the other black residents of Forsyth County. Ernest Knox, the 14-year-old, may have met the same end, but the National Guard was brought in at Mayor Charlie Harris's request, and Ernest was safely whisked away to Gainesville, Georgia, where he was tried, convicted, and hung along with another accused perpetrator. I'm sorry, I don't have all the names. This is just incredibly heavy, and I'm doing the absolute best I, that I can to work through this story. At the same time, there was a lot of fear about race wars, as racial tensions were not uncommon in other parts of the state. And at the same time, lynching was not uncommon. So when a white businessman's storefront caught on fire the night that Rob was lynched, the white community immediately speculated that this was retaliation for the lynching by the black community and feared that a race war was imminent. So that next night, a group of white men gathered on horseback with frightening notes and letters, torches, guns, and dynamite, and went to the black residents, residences all around the county and told them if they weren't gone by sunset, the next day they would be killed. Sundown town kind of stuff. I'll talk more about sundown towns in another episode. Terrified and with very little time, families packed their wagons and left town as literal refugees heading to Atlanta, Gainesville, and Canton. 
Additionally, Rob's wife and other relatives were arrested in connection with rape of May with the rape of May Crow. In order to save her life, Rob's wife, Jane Daniels is her name, eventually had to testify against her own late husband. And I don't blame her for that either. Look, he's already dead. It was already extraordinarily traumatizing, I imagine, for her and for the family. And I'm sure that the threats against her were horrible, even though she had nothing to do with it. It was very common, according to this book, for the relatives of the people who were lynched to also be arrested because there was this fear of retaliation. And so his wife had to not only experience her husband being lynched, but also had to experience going to prison herself. And when the time came to go to court, as much as it may have pained her, she testified against Rob Edwards because she needed to live. And that's really it, that there weren't really many options for her. When May died of her injuries a couple weeks after she had been found, the town only became more enraged. After behaving respectfully during her funeral, white residents unleashed hell on black members of the community, shooting at any black person they saw in the vicinity. The question is, is one white woman's life worth the lives of an entire community? Especially when there's never absolute proof that a black person committed such a crime. The answer for many white community members was yes. What happened to Macro was incredibly tragic and her spirit deserves so much peace after such a traumatic end. But even one of her descendants, I believe a grandniece, has said that she believes her murder is a cold case. And what about the trauma of those who are lynched in the community around them? Mm. Before any of this happened, before everybody had even heard the name of Ellen Grice and her accusations, the Black residents of Forsyth were in celebration mode. Every year at the beginning of September, there was a harvest festival held on the Colored Methodist Campground, which was founded by Joseph Kellogg, a Black man with 200 acres of land, one of the largest plots in the county. Not just, of, not just one of the most prominent Black landowners, one of the most prominent landowners in the county was a Black man. There was a lot of food, including barbecue, along with games, and just plain fellowship. This day was interrupted by the happenings with Reverend Grant Smith and Tony Howell. He was accused of raping Ellen Grice. And by the end of October, all but a handful of the nearly 1,100 Black residents of Forsyth County were gone. I tell these stories because we have to factor in generations of trauma within the Black community. Black people have not been free to exist safely in the United States, despite being technically freed from enslavement. And as I spoke about in the last episode, this is a loss of generational wealth. Black refugees from Forsyth 
left their crops, livestock, homes, and land. The white residents took crops, livestock, and land. When the homes collapsed, they collected the wooden boards for their own purposes. There are no records of any sales being made by the black residents who left. So these items were literally stolen and added to the wealth of the white residents who remained. Now Forsyth is still overwhelmingly white, though diversity has started to increase there ever so slightly. It is also now one of the wealthiest counties in Georgia and the United States. On top of all that, residents of the county have had a history of doubling down on their racism and have expressed pride in removing the Black population. Patrick Phillips, again the author of Blood at the Root, moved to the county with his family in the 70s and being what he described as part of a white liberal family, they immediately knew something was up. Just blatant racism. Additionally, a peaceful march was planned in 1987 by a group from Atlanta called the Brotherhood of Marchers on the 75th anniversary of the racial cleansing. This was a Black-led protest, but a multiracial group. Upon arriving in the county, they were met with violence by counter-protesters, residents of Forsyth, and eventually had to abandon the march altogether. They were not protected. I didn't even go into detail about the police here. The county sheriff in 1912 was a known member of the Ku Klux Klan himself. This was not uncommon, and folks wonder why we're wary of police. It's always my hope that I can talk more about the lives of the Black residents of communities prior to the violence that led to the community's end. But unfortunately, not much is written about the lives of Black Forsythians. I totally made that up. I do not know if that is what people who live in Forsyth call themselves. Many Black Forsythians could not read or write. However, I think it's safe to say that in the midst of the scary time of Jim Crow, these folks were trying to build their lives and homes, and I imagine dared to be hopeful about the future. Now, again, Watching this video by Amber Ruffin sparked my curiosity about what happened here. And she mentions some other places which I'll explore in future episodes. Just to wrap up with Lake Lanier, it wasn't built to destroy the black community, though it is the final nail in the coffin to the story. Yes, there are structures and even cemeteries beneath the lake that once belonged to the black community. It was built for hydroelectricity but people use it recreationally. I've heard that this recreational use is really dangerous. The lake is not meant to be used that way. There have been a lot of deaths on the lake. I imagine there's just a lot of bad juju there, you know? Like energetically, it probably feels really off. Please don't go swimming in Lake Lanier. Like I just, I can't even imagine, like I, I don't think there's enough sage in the world <laughs> or whatever it is that you do to clear your energy. I don't think there's enough. There is so much more I could share on this story, but I've reached my limit. This was hard. Um, I know that I could have delved in a little bit more, but 
I really had a hard time with this one. So I'll share the resources so you can learn more. I'm so sorry this episode was late, but in the midst of holiday rest and grief, I found it really hard to tackle the story, but I knew it needed to be done. I've been thinking about this story for a long time and I figured it was just time to get it out there. And I'm glad that I have now done it. I am going to be working to take care of myself when I do this research. And I'm going to share some plant medicine with you to encourage you to do the same. Just a reminder, I am not a doctor or an herbalist talk to a doctor or an herbalist or both for more information, especially if you are in any kind of medication or have any kind of medical condition. Medications and herbs can interact with one another and be harmful, so be careful. That being said, if something sounds interesting to you, I'll share resources so you can learn more about it. The plant of this episode is sassafras. I love this word. It is native to Georgia and throughout the Southeast. Its botanical name is Sassafras albidum, and it's also known as og tree, cinnamon wood, sal <laughs> saxifrax, sassafrax, sassafract, and smelling stick. You know I'm getting this from my book, Working the Roots. It works as an alterative, which aids in detoxification and anodyne to relieve and soothe pain, an antiseptic, which prevents infection, an aromatic, meaning it has a fragrance, a carminative, which is anti-gas, relaxes the stomach and supports digestion, a diaphoretic, which reduces fevers, a diuretic, which aids in preventing liquid retention, a stimulant, which provides an energy boost and alertness, and a vasodilator, which widens blood vessels and reduces hypertension. Whew, sassafras packs a punch, which we absolutely need to heal generational trauma and illnesses related to the stress of experiencing racism. Sassafras is a tree and the flowers, leaves and roots and bark have been used medicinally. It's used to treat colds and fevers as a blood cleanser, as a healer for wounds and skin conditions, and as a health tonic for a variety of issues, including inflammation. It's been combined with other herbs when used for colds and as a seasonal tonic, and was made into tea and root beer. Before this was common as a remedy in Black American folk medicine, the Choctaw, sorry about the siren, there's a lot going on outside. Okay, let's just go on. Uh, yes, the Choctaw would use a paste of dried sassafras leaves to thicken and flavor their soups and stews. And it is now a common ingredient in the filet for gumbo. A big however here. The ingestion of sassafras can be toxic depending on the amount ingested and the length of time it is being used. Please 
please talk to a professional and do everything in moderation. Approach this plant with the utmost respect. A plant with this much healing power deserves a lot of respect and reverence. The website, Rx List, says don't use this plant medicinally at all, especially if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, if you are a child, are going into surgery, or have a urinary tract infection. Potential side effects are sweating, hot flashes, and high amounts can potentially cause vomiting, high blood pressure, hallucinations, and skin crashes when used topically. Oof. Please don't do this without help. I'm begging you. I understand that in Western medicine, there hasn't been enough research to really say that this is something that works. And I just want you to be smart. Like, I think this could be healing. I know that there are herbalists who do have this plant. Um, just work really closely with them so that you do not harm yourself if you do indeed choose to use it. And make sure that you look up to see if there's any medications that it interacts with. And of course, if you are somebody with any of the conditions that I listed, avoid it altogether. As far as preparation, people have prepared this plant as a leaf tea, a root tea, and a poultice using the roots or the leaves. You can talk with an herbalist about how best to prepare this if you use it for any reason. And check out Working the Roots, over 400 years of traditional African-American healing by Michelle E. Lee for more information. Sometimes what worked for our ancestors when they had no other resources is something that doctors consider toxic. Be mindful of that and seek a treatment that feels right with you with professional assistance. I'll try not to have so many of these extra heavy stories one after another. Again, if you are from any of the places I spotlight or know any good stories, share them with me via email at unsettledlivespod at gmail.com or at unsettledlivespod on Instagram. You can also share your reactions to these stories and how you felt learning something new. Oh, and also share your New Year's traditions or Hop and John variations if you'd like. Talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.